0: We are talking about the idea of a person being resilient, but also that you need a community in order to be resilient and that at at your community, you're also a part of your institution. And so there's a lot of things that go into play. This is not, being successful in academic medicine is not a one-person show. You will not be successful if you're relying solely on yourself. And so that's why it really is important, I think, to build relationships with colleagues and seek their seek their input, seek their guidance, seek their knowledge, not keep everything inside. And to me, that's part of that resilience. Uh, sometimes it takes time, I think. Welcome to Well Developed, a podcast where we explore
1: how to bridge the gap between well-being and professional development. My name is Aaron Herrera. I'm the Associate Vice Chair of Well-Being in the Department of Anesthesiology at Washington University in St.
2: Louis. I'm Rachel Moquin. I'm an assistant professor and director of learning and development in the Department of Anesthesiology at Washington University in St. Louis, and Aaron and I um, started this podcast because we believe that it is difficult to learn well or perform well when you are not well. So in this podcast series, we'll be bringing in experts and sharing our knowledge and experience on these important topics. We hope to provide space to validate, normalize, and explore the ways in which we bring our whole selves to work.
1: Hello, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again on the Well-Developed Podcast. Uh, we are here today with a very special guest who we invited over from our, our sister university here in St. Louis, uh, St. Louis University. Um, we have Dr. Christina Dizar here with us, um, and she is the Assistant Dean for Scholarly Teaching and Learning. So I'm going to kick it off to her um, for just a moment to talk a little bit about more about what she does at St. Louis University.
0: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you a bit today. Um, As she said, my name is Christina DeZara. I'm a PhD medical educator at the St. Louis University School of Medicine. I am the director of the newly established Center for Educator Development, Advancement, and Research. And at that center, we focus on two uh, main areas to support faculty throughout the institution, and that is areas of educator development and educational scholarship. I'm excited to be here today and speak with you about some of my areas of expertise and how I try to
2: practice resilience in the work that I do every day. I am so excited to uh, have been able to invite Christina. You know, I love finding fellow health professions educators. Um, Christina and I work together um, on the MedEd Pearls blog and um, so you can check those out for all of the wonderful topics that we cover for health professions educators. Um, but when Christina and I were chatting recently, um, we were talking about different elements of our work and the podcast came up and um, Christina has done a tremendous amount of work in health professions education scholarship um, and has a, a sort of long and really interesting um, career trajectory in academic medicine. Um And that doesn't come without a lot of resilience, um, which is our topic for this episode. Um, And so we're just going to jump in and talk about um, resilience, resiliency, um, and how important it is for career development, well-being, particularly in academic medicine and in clinical work. Um, So I think framing us a little bit around what we mean when we say resilience is a helpful starting point. And so in preparing for this today, there's a lot of different definitions, but I kind of Put them all together into one, um, and you guys can tell me what you think about it, but generally resilience refers to the capacity to respond to stress in healthy ways or the ability to kind of bounce back, I'm using air quotes there, bounce back after challenges and grow from them. Um, and then it depends a lot on individual, community, and institutional factors. So I think helpful to frame at the beginning that resilience isn't like a one-person thing that you can like build and do and have all on your own, but that it is dependent on you and the community around you and institutional or structural um, forces around you. So that's kind of the definition that I centered on. What are your thoughts? what would you add? Change. I love that definition. So I love that you're bringing in institutional
1: component because I think, so for me, I'll be I'll be very honest. I have like kind of a bias against the word resiliency because I think resiliency has been weaponized um, recently, especially amongst healthcare workers. Because I think, you know, when people are burned out and they're stressed to work, I think kind of the go-to statement is like, well, you need to be more resilient, which I think it's crazy because, well, you do need (laughs) to be more resilient, but I think, you know, they're forgetting and they're putting the impetus solely on the individual is your resilience is your problem. Um, When in fact, it's the community and the institutions and all of us that need to work to improve resiliency to, for to me, to insinuate to people, you're burnt out because you're not resilient is crazy because I'm sure everyone in healthcare isn't suddenly not resilient at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> um, so I'm excited to dive into today to talk a little bit more about this and how we can all develop it.
2: Yeah, and I think I agree with you, Erin, that it can be weaponized, and I see this a lot with trainees in medical education. Uh, just build more. We're looking for people who are resilient to be to work here to be successful here. You have to be resilient, and that does not mean that you just like put up with things. Or that you just sort of grit it out and that you just like deal with all the hard stuff and go home and, you know, take care of your well-being and then come back and keep like being resilient about all the, the difficult stuff. Um, it's also not about just like being stoic or figuring everything out on your own. Um, but that advocacy and support are key factors. And before we started recording, Christina, you had talked about a Peloton um, kind of analogy that I think would be helpful to share at this point.
0: Yes, I would absolutely love to chat about that for a second. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about this conversation so far is that we are talking about the idea of a person being resilient, but also that you need a community in order to be resilient and that at, at your community, you're also a part of your institution. And so there's a lot of things that go into play. This is not—being work. successful in academic medicine is not a one-person show. You will not be successful if you're relying solely on yourself. And so, um, as Rachel pointed out, I've, I've had the honor of working at a number of fantastic institutions over the uh, course of my career. Uh, when I was at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, my supervisor was Lori Berkowitz, a fantastic, wonderful OBGYN physician. And one of the things that she always talked about was building your educational peloton. And I said, you know, Lori, I don't don't have a Peloton, I'm not a bike rider, this is sort of an interesting concept to me. And so when we Googled it, we found out that in bicycle racing, a Peloton is the main body of riders who cycle together, forming a community. And so we came up with this idea of the educational Peloton, and that we can cycle together for success during uncertain times, right? So this is something where you wanna try to optimize learning, optimize team performance, Work together when things are challenging, promote psychological safety, um, maximize learning opportunities, think about giving and receiving feedback, asking for feedback, and really having an environment that feels collegial, that when there is a problem, you're able to talk about it. When when you when you are thinking about yourself, you're also thinking about others. And so we actually went ahead and published a paper, it's a thought piece in the Journal of Continuing Education for health professions um, about this educational peloton. And so I just think, you know, sometimes even the things that you're thinking about in your daily life, in your daily communication with others could even be translated into scholarship like
2: we did with this paper. It'll surprise no one that I would have had to Google the term because uh, <laughs> I do not, do not, I also do not buy. <laughs> but I like that analogy a lot, that it's a group and that resilience is a, like, single-person sport.
0: Right. And that we are, we are all cycling together to achieve the same goal and that we should talk about those goals and we should try to be a team together. And the more we promote that and the more we work together, whether we're medical students working together, residents working together, faculty working together, or ideally all of us working together to have a really high-quality learning environment, a really high-quality uh, place to work, that's what it's all about. We have to be there for each other. I love this sport analogy because
1: one of the papers that Rachel and I read in in preparation for this podcast was talking about professional athletes and how much work they put in to themselves and their personal improvement off off the game field, and um, how that's just considered a very normal part of their sport is to put in that time. And you know, for us in medicine and other careers, like people don't don't do that type of type of preparation for both their well being and their resilience and you know, I was thinking about how, you know, professional athletes and professional football players they watch they watch game tapes and they go through the game and they talk about what they did great and what they need to change. And that's just such a normal part of athletics. Um, but, you know, we we would never do the same thing in medicine. You would never record a surgery and tell yourself all the great things you did. And then also, you know, I, it's just interesting that that is not seen as something that is selfish or self-absorbed if you, spend hours with a sports psychiatrist and working on your workout routine and going over game plays, um, that maybe that's a great model that other people should do. Think think about it as a team in preparation.
2: Yeah. And I think that's important too because that is happening for them like as a part of their work. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's sort of your fear that when we talk about well-being, we talk about resilience, people see it as this like, oh, I'll do that. Like, After I leave work, I'll do self-care later. That's like this separate thing. But what's key about resilience, particularly in the workplace, is that it's something that we need to be focusing on and thinking about while we're at work. And that to build resilience, we have to engage in our work in a nourishing way, not withdrawing from it and thinking like, well, this is really hard and I hate it. But when I get home, I'll do X, Y, Z to take care of myself. And then I'll come back tomorrow and I'll do more hard things that are terrible. And then I'll go home and I'll do self-care. But really that they overlap in the way that they do for these professional athletes, right? You're thinking about feedback. You're reflecting on mistakes. You're finding ways to grow as a part of your work so that your work feels nourishing and that you're growing. Um, And that it's not like we don't build resiliency after 5 or 6 or 7 p.m.
1: Yeah. yeah, It's (laughs) not seen as something that you like need because you're weak. It's seen Mm -hmm. as something that is helping you as a professional and as a person. Right.
0: Well, uh, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and <laughs> then I, I watch a lot of football with my husband and my pug on Sundays. And one of the things that I, I feel is really relevant to this conversation, um, when you see a very um, good football player who is well known for um, being very good at the, at the position in which they play, who is injured, who is on the injured reserve, you often see them on the sidelines during the game. And when they interview them at the end of the game, I've heard a number of them say something like, you know, I'm really glad that so-and-so has stepped into my position. I'm meeting with him. I'm trying to help him be the best that he can because we are doing our best for the team. And so I think sometimes we forget that even if we aren't taking that primary role for whatever it is, that research project that we're a part of, that evaluation that we're leading, that new initiative, it's all right to step back, give our best to the person that is leading with the realization that the goal is for all of us to be successful. And so I think that fits well with that sports analogy. Um, One of the things I did want to bring up that I thought was interesting, I also Googled the word resilience. And my definition that I found that I liked was the capacity to withstand or to recover quickly from difficulties. Now, one thing I have to say about that. I'm not sure we always recover quickly from difficulties in academic medicine. I think sometimes we recover, but I think it can take a little bit of time. And when you're in a situation like that and you're feeling as though you can't recover, um, one of the things I've found helpful is to find a trusted colleague and do a little bit of a reflection with them. Um, this is how something went. I didn't have the ideal outcome what would you have done in this situation? Or what is your impression? Because sometimes the way that you're thinking about something, getting a trusted colleague's perspective on how they think about the challenge and how they would approach it may be really eye-opening to you. Your, Your view may not be what is really going on. And so that's why it really is important, I think, to build relationships with colleagues and seek their seek their input, seek their guidance, seek their knowledge, not keep everything inside. And to me, that's part of that resilience. Uh, Sometimes it takes time, I think.
2: Yeah, I think you're hitting on a lot of things that resonate, like the idea that a supportive network and that these connections can help us become more resilient, build our self-awareness, doing some reflection and gaining other people's perspectives is helpful. That makes me think back to our episode on cognitive distortions. Mm -hmm. And how we can have these like frameworks in our minds that like, oh, that was a total failure or I like really screwed that up. Um, but having someone to bounce those off of to sort of look back at you and say like, no, actually like talk more about that or you met this part of your goal or you took this step forward can be a way to break those, those cognitive distortions that we can all have. Um, which as you pointed out is a way to build that resilience muscle, right? That we like may have a stumble or a setback but it's not the whole thing and not everything is over and it's not this catastrophe, but that we can bounce back and that we can recover quickly and we can try again and learn from that mistake. Yeah, and it's a great way, I think, to normalize failures,
1: if you will, that, you know, failures are a part of life that everything's not perfect all the time. And I think opening up to a trusted colleague or a network of su- supportive colleagues to talk about, you know, everyone has experienced this and how did you overcome
2: this, how is the, the process to overcome this, I think is really important. I was, um, you can probably relate to this a little bit, Christina, I was submitting a paper to a journal that I thought was a really good fit um, and got back like several rounds of like major revisions and it just like was feeling like it wasn't going to happen. And so I reached out to someone who has published in that journal a lot. I was like, man, like how what am I doing wrong? And they're like, no, that's just what it takes. Like that happens every time. And just to like hear someone normalize that like hard thing and just like, no, don't give up. Keep trying. Like this is what it takes. This is, it's hard for everybody was really helpful. And without that, I probably would have stopped. Like I probably would have been like, well, I'm not doing this right. And the end for me. (laughs) Right. I I completely agree. Um, The idea of failure
0: as part of the journey to success, I don't think we embrace that enough. And so you were just talking about your journey of getting your paper published. I hope that you get to that success. I believe that you will. My fingers are very much crossed for you. But I have to tell you that reminds me of a, a little bit of a journey that I had myself on a paper that recently came out in the Journal of Medical Education and Curricular Development. Um We did this really cool, at least I think it's really cool, initiative during the peak of COVID-19 to try and engage health professions educators to create and disseminate micro-virtual asynchronous educator development um, and share that in multitude of ways throughout the institution. And so uh, we got 50 people to get their best tips, and we shared these tips in our newsletter and on social media and on the carousels and on our website, and it I thought this initiative was really cool because it just spotlighted education at a time where it might have been feeling a little bit secondary. And so I would said to my supervisor, I am going to create this as a scholarship. I am going to develop this initiative, evaluate it in the hopes that I can publish it. And I told him this when we first got started, and he was like, okay. And so we do the whole initiative. We evaluate it. I submit it to a journal, which will remain unnamed. <laughs> they like it, at least I thought. They gave me your revise and resubmit. I worked incredibly hard with my co-authors on this revise and resubmit. And someone had recently told me, and let's remember this, uh, revise and resubmit is the new accept. And I said, oh, okay, revise and resubmit, must be the new accept. Let's get these revisions in, do a good job, and I'm sure I'll look forward to acceptance in no time. A couple months later, I hear back from the journal they decided to reject my paper. And I was like, but I did all this work. I did all these revisions. Are you kidding me? Like you're supposed to tell me to revise it again and revise it again and revise it again again until you accept it. This is not the outcome that I was hoping for, especially because I told my boss that I intended this is scholarship. Well, I chatted with my team. The paper was already so much better because the revise and resubmit process does work, even though this journal turned down my paper. I found another journal. I submitted it to another journal. Five rounds of revisions. Five <laughs> rounds of revisions. We only had reviewer number two the whole time. <laughs> but we made it till the end. We completed the final revisions, and it was accepted and published in the journal just a couple of months ago. Now, you might be thinking that feels like a lot of failures, Christina. You got a revise and resubmit. You did all this work with your co-authors. It was rejected from that journal. You had to find another journal and you had to do five rounds of revisions. And at some point, you probably just wanted to stop. But I'll tell you what, this is a way better paper than it was at that very first pass. And so the victory in the journey is knowing that this paper is way better, that it's published in a good journal, and that when I told my boss I wanted it to be scholarship, I was able to do that at the end of the day. And so this aligns with that definition because I didn't recover quickly from the setback. This took a long
2: time to publish this paper. It took a couple of years, but it's out there. Mm. Yeah, and that like, I think we share that experience in sort of the publishing acad- world of academic medicine, but it also makes me think about like our clinical learners and our medical students and trainees, right? Like when you're practicing something in simulation or you're like trying to do a difficult airway and you're not getting it, right? That ability to say like, okay, it didn't happen that time. Let me try again. Or like the next time I encounter this, like that recovery is super, super important. And every time you fail or every time you make a mistake, you learn something that makes you more prepared to do it the next time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it's finding that, finding the positives, I think, is what's so important. You know, you had mentioned that, that it's a better paper and, The thing I always tell myself whenever a failure or or something isn't successful, I'm like, I'm just building my body of work. It's it's okay. (laughs) That's my my (laughs) go-to definition. But I think it's really important to find that thing, especially when you talk about clinical failures, is maintaining that progressive positive mindset knowing you're going to have to do it again. Because, you know, unlike a paper where it's Mm -hmm. easy to throw in the towel maybe— that's mm-hmm. easier to, to tell, you know, for clinicians, you have to show up the next day and intubate a patient. It, it's not an option to not do that. And I think it's maintaining that outlook and finding the things you did well the first time around. And every time you approach it kind of with that mindset of, you know, I I have to keep forging ahead. Mm-hmm. It's not an option to not do that. Um, but how can I use my
2: failures of past times to, to get where I need to be? Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for like, proactive reflection like that this word sort of don't really go together that well but i think like when i make a mistake or when something doesn't go well the next time like when i show up and i know i have to do it again reflecting back on what i felt last time what emotions i experienced where i felt like i did well what mistakes i made like proactively bringing that back to the surface before i jump in and do that that next attempt can be really helpful, and I think that builds that sort of resilience muscle. It's like, okay, I I see it. Like hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I see what my misstep was. This time, I know it, and I'm going to be like very thoughtful about it. And so we're just building that. Like, get back up, do it again, do it better.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things you know we read about in one of the journals that we read, preparing for this, was talking about you know little moments of mindfulness that can improve your resiliency. And, you know, I think there's different types of things. You know, when you're talking about writing a journal, that's more of a prolonged, you know, working on your resiliency versus a clinical situation. And um, one of the mindfulness techniques they talked about was just like taking a pause before you start a skill or a task and taking a deep breath and kind of clearing your mind for that and kind of mentally preparing to take on the task. And um, I think in medicine, a lot of us, you just tend to forge through your day. It's just one thing after another, but it's taking those conscious, mindful pauses um, to kind of reflect on what you're doing, why you're doing it, why you're there, um, and how important those moments are, but how we don't necessarily do them every day. And um, that's one of the things when we talk about adding this into your day and into training. um, A lot of medical programs are now adding in resiliency training and mindfulness activities as part of curriculums so that we can establish this skill set. Because I think a lot of people don't necessarily have this skill set or... If they do have it, they don't consciously bring it to mind before they're starting challenging activities.
0: Right. And I think sometimes, too, just the world that we live in can feel really overwhelming. Our phone is always dinging. I I listened to one of your recent podcasts and uh, talked a little bit about this idea of the Sunday scaries and how we should sort of— take time for ourselves and maybe not check our email or Epic or whatever it may be, knowing that on Monday morning, we are going back to work and we will do our work on Monday. But we often have this feeling of um, right now, fear of missing out, and that can be hard. And so um, I remember back a couple of years ago, I was teaching a class to health professions, education students. These are advanced undergraduate students. they healthcare research class with me, they came in scared, doe-eyed, just, oh my goodness, research? Oh, this is going to be horrible. And then they met me. And so by the end of the semester, I think their opinion had changed because they weren't so scared of research anymore. But one of the things that I did, and we started it off every single class, and you would be amazed at how these learners really loved it, I'm sure there are a million terms for it, but what I called it is a minute to situate ourselves in our learning space. And this is, this is classroom learning. This was an hour and a half long class, but I would stand at the front, I'd ask everybody to close their eyes, take a real deep breath, in and out. And I would invite them to situate themselves in their learning space, to find this a joyful place, to choose to be with us in the moment, to choose to, to, leave, uh, to leave distractions to the side, and to really immerse themselves in the opportunity to learn. And they did it, and they loved it, and they thanked me for it. And so as educators in whatever space in which we're working It is okay. I think we don't do it enough, as you pointed out, to say, hey, why don't we all just take a minute to breathe and realize that life is hectic and life is heavy and let's just make sure that we're settled and ready to move into this, you know, this this learning that we're going to do or this clinical care that we're going to do or whatever we're going into because we really are all here in this together. We don't take enough time to just take a minute and breathe.
2: Yeah, and I think That makes me think in reading about sort of this article that Aaron and I will post that we both read um, and then the literature around resilience, they talk about reflecting and being mindful in particular about your own attitude and your own emotions that promote your ability to constructively engage with things that are hard. So if you know that you're going to face something that's challenging or you know you're going up against something that's going to sort of push your ability to want to be resilient, Right? Taking that minute, centering yourself and saying, okay, how can I re- engage in this next thing that's going to be hard? How can I engage in it meaningfully? Because I'm, I'm going to have to do it. Here it comes. And so I think building in those moments, whether it's with your team, leaning on that network, encouraging your learners, um, but I think it's really important because we know that we're going to face difficult things. Um, and so taking that space to like prepare for them and think like, I got to do it. How do I want to be when I do it? What do I need to think about? It's really important. Yeah. And
1: normalizing that, that pause. You know, I do think there are some people that are just inherently more resilient than others. And I don't know whether that's, you know, just your upbringing. I'm sure there's a multitude of factors that kind of, you know, set your resiliency barometer for each person. Um, but I think, especially here in academic medicine, where everyone tends to be You know, like we've talked about in other podcasts, people tend to be perfectionists. People tend to be very, very driven. People, it's just in general, a very type A high stress environment that all of us have kind of put ourselves in. And I think we don't do a great job normalizing failures. I think we tend to kind of shove them under the rug and you move on. And then when you have a success, that's what gets promoted. And I think we don't have these open conversations with colleagues and more broadly about, hey, this didn't work. How are we moving on? How are we recentering ourselves to do it um, without quitting? Because that's the stuff that we don't see a lot of. There is a lot of resiliency and persistence happening here, um, but it's not what we like to promote and talk about.
2: Yeah, I think you're right about that. I have meetings with people all the time, and I I feel like I, something I hear is like, oh, it's like, I feel so embarrassed I'm the only one. And like, no, absolutely not, not ever. Not ever are you the only one who has stumble in this way or experiences failure or feels like this is hard. Can be with a lot of lawyers who are like, it it shouldn't, like, it seems so easy for everyone else. I'm like, no, no, we are just conditioned to make it seem like things are easy. Um, And so I encourage people all the time, you know, as comfortable as you are, it's an individual thing. You know, we all have our limits and boundaries and what we're comfortable sharing, but as comfortable as you can be acknowledging sort of to others, your stumbles and your failures, that helps everyone so that we don't feel like we're alone and that we can build this resiliency together, right? Oh, that was hard for you. Okay, it was also hard for me. Like, what can we, you know, how can we support each other?
1: Yeah, I think it's extra tricky in anesthesiology in particular, especially for our learners, because we in anesthesiology work semi-isolated. You kind of work on your own and you work one-on-one with an attending or you work just by yourself. And I think it's easy to not be able—you're you you're not able to really compare yourself to your peers because you don't see them. And I think it's very easy to internalize, like, I bet everyone's doing it better than me because you don't have any comparison. And um, I know when I was training, two of my still very best friends, Katie and Caroline— We used to go work out the mornings after clinicals and we would like go jogging and I'm like, oh, I missed all my airways this week. And they'd be like, me too. Like we all, (laughs) we would all commiserate on how Uh terrible we were doing. And it was so cathartic to just be able to say that openly. And um, I think in anesthesia in particular, you're in this little isolated pod and it's very easy to get in your head about things. And I think you need those community spaces to normalize. You're not good at everything your first time period. Doesn't matter what it is. The first time you do things you're not good at. And possibly
2: the second, third, yeah. fourth, fifth, or more. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think it can be easy to look around, especially when we think about like, you know, publishing is one of the currencies of promotion in this like sort of academia that we operate in. And it can be easy to look around and say like, oh, well, they're like, it seems like they have all of these things coming out or they're like really good at this. They're like, I don't have that number of things or I don't have that Title or I don't have you know it's easy to look left and right and think about like sort of get down on ourselves and let all those cognitive distortions bubble right up but I think you know we're all running our own race and we're running it next to each other and as a team but the like comparison is the thief of joy and I think that's something that's hard too oh I love that statement well especially now in an era of social media
1: where everyone only is posting the beautiful shiny stuff in the papers that are already published and no one is making social media posts about their seven rejections of
2: papers and I (laughs) that's where we're at so it's hard Yep. I have a picture we were on uh, vacation with our two kids last week and we went we spent a day at Magic Kingdom Disney World my husband's favorite place on the planet Uh, and my two year old was just not just wouldn't just was not and he's not a loud kid. He's not going to scream. He's not going to publicly throw a massive tantrum. But he just laid face down <laughs> on the wet concrete. Just laid, like, starfished out. And just, like, wouldn't. Wouldn't get up. Wouldn't let me pick him up. Wasn't yelling. Just laid there. And I just thought, like, this is not the photo. Like, when people thought, like, it's the this the happy kids with Mickey. It's the kids in front of the castle. And I, like, have I took a picture of him because I thought, like, someday this will be funny to him. <laughs> That this is what he was doing. It's like, this isn't something you post. But that's exactly it. Like, you, you don't post those things. i uh, okay. love to read a
0: post that. I would have gotten Right. I, I okay. think that's the front of your next year holiday card to see. It's <laughs>
2: Frank. Yes. Merry right. Christmas yes. from the Magic Kingdom.
0: <laughs> it, well, everyone,
1: like every parent, I'm sure everyone, just like so very much relates to that
2: scenario. of Just that. Flaccid toddler, unwilling to do anything, and mm-hmm. adults do it too. We well, we sent the five year old on, and I just I just waited. Well, he just laid, but he eventually got up. He was resilient. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: it do, it does draw a little bit of parallels to some of the work that we do when we're on a team because you know you may have a team where three or four of everyone you know we're in sync, we're moving together, we see the light, we see where we're going, and then you may have one team member who doesn't. You know, they're not into it. It's not their thing. They feel like they have to be there. They don't want to. And so it does, you know, I think sometimes help you think about calibrating your team. What is the skill set that is needed for every person on the team? Does every person on the team feel needed and wanted? Does everyone feel that they're contributing? And so um, if you've ever been on a team where you have one person and you're just feeling like, they don't get it. They're not fitting in. They're not. They're not doing their part. There's something off. Maybe it's a question of calibration. Maybe it's a question of you know what. What can you do to help support them in being a more effective team member? Or is there a problem that um, is beyond being a part of the team? And this person needs to um, that there's something else going on. So I guess I guess to me, I saw this happy family and the one person who just wasn't into it, and yet you certainly can experience this in your daily work mm-hmm.
2: as well. Yeah, and that, that makes me think about how we talked about resilience is individual, but it's also community and it's institutional. Right. And it doesn't mean like when you're not feeling it or when it feels too hard right. that you just have to figure out a way to you know get yourself up off the ground. But really, the community and the institution around you should also be thinking like, what what needs to change here? Like, what's making this this hard? What? How can we support people in their resilience? Not just like walk away from walk away from the two year old and be like, well, when you decide to get up, get up. We'll be on the ride, right? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, yeah. I think that's
1: important to again, like, and and make sure that you are at an institution that is allowing for failures and not letting that be you know, something that can be used against you and and being supportive and normalizing that that failures are part of life and work and personal life. Um, But again, yeah, developing those supportive systems um, in place for when people do fall. So great. I think we've had some really good like tips to implement to help the resiliency both of yourself. And I like how we talked a lot about the resiliency of a team because I think that's an important Part that you need to do with the
0: team, right? And as as much as I have loved all of the institutions that I have worked and have had so many wonderful colleagues in my departments or my institutes or my centers, sometimes the people who are going to be able to understand the work that you're doing and why you're doing it. And 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 what your challenges are may not be in your own department division or group. They may be people you know through your local, regional or national network of people who do what you do. I mean, an example here is Rachel, we're on that MedEd Pearls team together. You've seen me email our group and say, Hey, Meded Pearls buddies. I have a question. Who's grappling with this? Who has an idea for me? And that's that's leveraging this community of other mostly PhD, sometimes MD educators, who may have a way to help me solve my problem that I might not be able to solve because I don't know who at my institution can help me or I don't feel that I have someone to ask. So as much as we want to be resilient within our own community and be building our community where we are... You know, I'm not somebody who's ever shy to try to find someone like me at another school who can give me just a little guidance or advice to help me be successful here.
2: Yeah, and that's a good example of knowing yourself and knowing what strategies get you over that, like, okay, I've encountered a problem. I don't think I can solve it here and I don't know what I need. And instead of walking away, that's a strategy you've learned about yourself, that you have this network, that you can reach out, that it's a strength of yours. Um, And you're right, I have seen it, and it has been very helpful for me recognizing, like, other people at other places grapple with what I grapple with, and it's okay to ask for help, and that connection makes all of us better. Yeah, I think that's a great point
1: because—so there's this big can of worms that I didn't even open today, and it's talking about, like, clinicians overcoming resiliency when you talk about, like, second victim trauma Mm -hmm. in the OR or you have a patient death, and that's that's a big part of clinician resiliency is overcoming mistakes and and bad outcomes— Um, And so here at WashU, we have a lot of clinician peer support programs. And so I was talking to the director of one of those programs today, and he told me that the majority of people that want to talk to someone about an adverse event in the OR will rarely choose someone within their own specialty. They want to talk to someone who knows medicine but isn't necessarily a direct peer. And how having those supportive networks where you can bounce ideas off someone who may, you know, you feel less judgment, um, talking to them is super duper important. So I don't want to dive into that because that's like a whole other mm-hmm. massive discussion that we could do a whole other podcast about. Um, but kind of it's the same tenets of those resiliency is it doesn't matter what the issue is that there are people who you can lean on to be supportive to get you through those failures, whether it's something educational or whether it's something a lot you know, more serious about a patient death that you're struggling with. Um, the same kind of mindful networking community response um, works for a lot of these things.
2: We can't be resilient without community.
0: No, I absolutely love the idea of trying to find somebody who understands just enough of what you do to be supportive without being so ingrained in it that there's going to be some sort of judgment. And so I know at one of my prior institutions, they were building up an initiative that you would have this sort of cohort of people who were clinicians who were trained in how to help other clinicians when they were in times of distress related to uh, patient care concerns. And that the goal was to have somebody who was not in your department be your Be your peer supporter um, in that. And so, you know, I have to say, I know we talked a bit about clinical care. Um, I'm not a clinician, so I do think a lot about research and scholarship. And so this does bring parallels, though. I think sometimes when we're on a team and we're trying to publish a paper, um, we very much focus on that team and working together as a team and the team is working well. Have you taken a minute to find somebody to read your paper before you submit it to that journal? Have you taken a minute to try and do some sort of uh, internal pre-submission, uh, give me feedback from a person, you know, and and I tell people, I'll do this for you, you know, at my institution. Send me your paper, your medical education paper before you're sending it out. Let me take a bit of that burden. Let me be that reviewer number two with a lot of kindness, uh, <laughs> you know, just, just, just to help you have a better paper before you're ready to submit it. Because the last thing I want to have happen as your peer is that you get rejected by the editor at first pass. No, no, no. My goal, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm on your paper, I'm not saying I'm on your research team, but my goal is always to try and help you publish that paper. And so sometimes we don't even rely enough on the people that are in our department division or group um, when we're on a project because we don't think of them as being on the project. But when somebody at my institution publishes a paper in the medical education space, that's a victory for all of us, whether
2: I was involved or not. That It makes me think of something that I think is really helpful that you've built into our department's PSA program, which is um, similar to what you were talking about, this program where people can reach out for support. Erin has developed that in our department. But when someone reaches out, they have the option to say, like, I want to talk to someone in my division or I don't, right? I think you've built that sort of place for them to evaluate their own, like, psychological safety needs, right? Do I want someone who's going to give me their opinion and their advice and tell me, what they would have done or I want someone who's a little bit removed so they can't tell me what they would have done they, they don't know but who can hear me and help me like work through kind of what I'm dealing with and so I think that you've built that in and that's really important yeah thanks that was that was the intent Sure. sir <laughs> great okay well I think we've covered a lot of ground um, any final thoughts I have been now in academic medicine for I haven't
0: counted in a while, but I'm going to say it's it's going on 15 years. And um, one of the things that I think I've learned, you know, every every place you're at, every space you're at, it feels it can feel really overwhelming to do whatever it is that your boss wants you to do, your department chair, your division chief, the people that you work with, the things that fall on your plate. But I think big picture is it really is a marathon and not a sprint. And I say this as not a runner, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't run. But, you know, this is your career, This is what you're doing with your entire career. And so now that I'm just a little bit older, now that I've spent a little more time, I try to think of it a little bit less as like, what am I doing right now? But what am I doing that I can build on from all the things that I've done in my past to help me be successful in this
2: current role that I'm in? So um, I guess that would be my take home uh, to you. Refer to the boundaries episode for how to set appropriate professional and personal boundaries, <laughs> which help you think long-term about your career as a marathon, as you said, not a sprint.
0: Yes. What, what was that? It was um, the, the yes, no. No. Yes. Now, uh-huh. yes, I listened to you. <laughs> yes, I, I liked the idea. Yes, that's a great idea. No, it's not exactly the time for me to engage with that. Let's see if
2: we can find somebody who would be a good fit for what you need. I loved it. Yeah, I think it's certainly harder to be resilient when our plate is too full. So I think those things go Absolutely. together. Well, sure.
1: My takeaway always at the end of these sessions where we talk about kind of developing skills is I think I'm I'm currently you know I have a third grader and we we are. Learning these social skills and how to bounce back, and it just makes me appreciate how this is such lifelong learning. Like you just have to keep working on yourself. So I'm teaching my third grader who gets a bad grade in math is the same resiliency training skills that I'm teaching myself every day and bouncing back. So it is a, a journey, a marathon, your whole life practicing from bouncing back from things.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, Christina, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm thrilled that, that you're next door at SLU. Oh, I love uh, having one of my collaborators closer. Oh, and I'm, we're really grateful that you came on and, chatted. Yeah, th- thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm also quite honored to be a member of the SLU School of Medicine team and also to now have some fantastic colleagues down the road at um, Wash University School of Medicine.